Let us pray. Father, please allow the words that are not of value to the listeners' ears to fall away and not be heard and cause the words of value to take root and grow in a deeper understanding of their intent than our earthly communication could ever accomplish. Please remove the scales from the eyes of our minds and hearts, allowing us to leave here today with a better picture of who you are and how you've called us to live out our lives in these, our times. In Christ's name, amen. As we start, I would like to read our scripture today taken from Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. What is lust? Or what is lust in this context? In secular literature, lust is used for both negative and positive. The positive meaning enthusiasm. We've all heard it said about someone, she really has a lust for life. And using lust to describe a desire to live a full and strong life. But in scripture, when this meaning was intended, it would have been translated as desire for or longing for. So when lust is used in the Bible, it means the following. Any desire, <clears throat> strong desire, craving, or want that opposes the holy will and command of God. Lust perverts, twists, and defiles all that is good and beautiful. And this is particularly true with sexual or carnal lust. As I was studying for this lecture, I was so tempted to look at our culture today and talk about all the influences, the temptations we face that others before us have never seen. It's so easy to point fingers at our accessibility to media like never before, our open depravity in the streets like never before, our over-sexualized, over-sensationalized culture like never before, and exclaim, we are living in the worst of times. But as I was reading about some historical events, I was struck by accounts of Pompeii and the open debauchery of the time, only a mere generation after this sermon was preached. I read that there were pornographic images throughout the city, and it was all well-preserved. There's no question about what was going on in that city. Graphic drawings served as advertisements for brothels depicting activities available along with pricing listed. 
I also found it interesting that there's evidence that some Jews lived in Pompeii, not just Romans. And to further shed some light on how differently Christians were being called to live their lives from the culture around them, the law of the time prevented Romans from committing adultery. But brothels and prostitution were legal. And because most Roman marriages were arranged to produce an heir and secure economic status, one was not expected to find pleasure in sexual relations within marriage. So in their minds, purchasing sex for pleasure was a means to protect marriage, obey the law, and help people stay faithful to their spouse. That kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? As I read those accounts, it reminded me of two things. God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, no matter the culture. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Ladies, we are not living in the worst of times. We are living in our times. And God's word doesn't change according to the times. Now, a few things to address before we start mining this passage together. Christ does mention men specifically, but I think it goes without saying that in this instance, the content of the passage does apply to women too. In addition, Jesus speaks of adultery, but it is clear with his following statements that he's talking about any sexual immorality. In this day, because men and women married so young, adultery would have been the majority of the temptation. But today, due to marrying later at later ages, we would also understand this to include fornication or sex outside of marriage as well. That said, let's talk about where Christ says lust starts. The eyes. A tale literally as old as earthly time, isn't it? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes in Genesis 3. Later, the Bible tells us about David's straying glances in 2 Samuel. And still later in that same book, Amnon, who'd fallen in love with his half-sister, asked, Please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. These are just a few of the many accounts of sin beginning with the lingering, lustful look and the heart following. There's an old proverb. What the eye does not see, the heart will be less likely to desire. Scripture is quite clear that the eye is the most obvious gateway to the heart and mind and clear about the importance of guarding all of them. 
we read um, in our small group from Job how he had made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. We read in Psalms 119, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And in Proverbs 4, the instruction, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Let's go back to the beginning with Eve in the garden when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. And let's understand that the root of all action on lingering lustful looks at the heart is disbelief in God. We don't believe that God is really who he says he is. We don't believe that he is really going to do what he says he will. In simpler terms, we don't think he truly loves us, sees us, hears us, and it's a failure to trust that our needs are going to be met. It is a failure to trust God and that his word is true. Jesus is not saying any sexual attraction or desire is bad. He specifically is using a word that is associated with greed or idolatry. Jesus is saying that it is possible to have that same philosophy of greed for money toward sex. Something that is used selfishly, addicting, filled with fantasies, looking to the world to give you what only God can give you. We aren't meant to squelch our desires. We are meant to turn from the rule of our desires to the rule of God. Thus, our desires are redeemed and returned to function as they were created to function. It's not just a stop. It's a go this way. A few years ago, we used to have an older miniature poodle named Buddy. And his sight had started failing when we took him on a trip to San Antonio. We stayed at a hotel along the river walk that allowed pets, and while my husband was in meetings, I would walk Buddy along the river walk. Well, as you know, sometimes the river there can be a muddy gray color. The first time I walked Buddy, he kept trying to pull me toward the river, which was strange because he usually hated water. I finally realized that in his limited vision, the river looked like a wide open path where he could freely walk and run and that seemed much more appealing to him than this narrow path we were on with the inconvenience of dodging people as we walked. Little did he know that what looked like freedom to him would have led to his destruction. But the leash I had him on kept him on the banks where life was. As inconvenient as it may have seemed at times to him, it was life. And as we walked that week, he gradually began to anticipate the benefits of staying on the narrow sidewalk. There were tasty treats. People had dropped at outdoor cafes. 
There were friendly hands ready to pat him and my praises for his obedience. There was a rich life on the banks. If sex outside the covenant relationship of marriage points toward hell, then sex inside of marriage is a dim pointer to what it's like to fall into the arms of our true spouse, Christ. Adultery is theft, and mental adultery is still theft. Robbing the other person of dignity, ignoring that they have been made in the image of God, and turning them into an object to be consumed for another's pleasure. I don't know each person's personal story in this room, whether you have objectified someone else or been objectified yourself, but God does. However, I do know statistics. I know that over 20% of porn purchased today is by women. I know of best-selling movies depicting men as mere sexual objects and women as the consumers. I know of mainstream entertainment normalizing forms of abuse in the marriage bed as something that women have been missing and need to have for excitement. I know that sexually transmitted diseases are on the rise in retirement communities, so lust is not a respecter of age. That sexual situations blatantly insinuating threesomes or orgies are being used in TV advertising to sell everything from hamburgers and candy bars to couches. I know that according to Jessica Harris, women, ordinary wives, moms, grandmothers, are the last bastion the porn industry is gunning for. And I know that we are called to guard our eyes minds, and hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. And whatever we consume will make its way back out in word, thought, or deed. Eventually, eventually, defiling our minds, our relationships, and our witness. And I do know that God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. And his word does not change. What Christ is saying to them, he is saying to us. It is not the eye that sins, but the heart that uses it for sin. God would have never created us with all this passion, energy, and verve if he didn't know we were able to properly live with them. But it is through him that we can properly use them. We must not simply not look, but we must look to something, truth, and the creation as it should be. Never does scripture ever assume a don't look attitude. The whole story is look, but look at the right things. Look to me, your creator, and at how wonderfully and fearfully you are made to fit with another 
in an exhilarating union that can produce another human being. Look at the glory you portray to the world when you totally and completely commit to another person to find delight in him and only him in reflection of my relationship with my bride, the church. But look to the true source, the only one who can fulfill your deepest inner longings, who created you this way. Anything short of that is drinking out of a stagnant, polluted pool that will only temporarily satisfy. To paraphrase D.A. Carson, Jesus is telling us here that we are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little at it around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, dig it out. If we are unwilling to stop, questions to ask. What is being longed for in the heart? What am I trying to obtain and protect? What do I love so deeply that threatens to consume me? In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells an allegorical story about a ghost of a man afflicted by lust. Lust is depicted by a red lizard that sits on his shoulder and whispers seductively in his ear. When the man anguishes over the lizard, the angel offers to kill it for him. But the man is conflicted, torn between loving his lust and wanting it to die. He is afraid the death of the lust will kill him. He keeps offering excuses to the angel, trying to hang on to this lizard he says he doesn't want. Eventually, the man decides to let the angel seize it and kill the lizard. The angel grabs the reptile, breaks its neck, and throws it on the ground. And once this spell of lust is broken, the ghostly man is remade into a real being. And the lizard, rather than dying, transforms into a beautiful, powerful stallion. The man begins to weep, tears of joy and gratefulness, mounts the horse, and they soar into the heavens to the mountain of God. In this allegory, C.S. Lewis demonstrates the link between killing lust and finding life. It can feel as if destroying our lust will destroy us, but it doesn't. And when we destroy our lustful desire, we come not to the end of desire, but to the beginning of pure desire as it was created to be. Stott explains it best. To obey this command of Jesus will involve for many of us a certain maiming. We shall have to eliminate from our lives certain things which though some may be innocent in themselves, either are or could easily become sources of temptation. In his own metaphorical language, we may find ourselves without eyes, hands, or feet. That is, we shall deliberately decline 
to read certain literature, see certain films, visit certain exhibitions. If we do this, we shall be regarded by some of our contemporaries as narrow-minded, untaught Philistines. What, they will say to us incredulously, you've not read such and such book? You've not seen such and such film? Why, you're not educated, man. They may be right. We may have had to become culturally maimed in order to preserve our purity of mind. The only question is whether, for the sake of this game, we are willing to bear that loss and endure that ridicule. As I close, I want to leave you with these major questions I found myself asking. Do I believe more in the idea of God or do I truly believe in the one true God and what he's capable of? Do I truly believe if I'm maimed in comparison to the culture around me that that lust, when crushed, is going to manifest itself like a white stallion in its full glory and intention in my life? If we did believe that, truly believe that, how beautiful our maiming would become. How powerful in our culture. Remember from weeks ago, as we learned, we are already salt and light. Let us not lose our flavor or hide our light under a basket. Father, let us encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Amen.